Many years ago, I, I read John Pollock's biography uh, about D.L. Moody. If you're not familiar with D.L. Moody, uh, Moody uh, is one of the most famous Christian leaders in the history of this nation, and I guess actually the world. Um, Moody confessed his faith in Jesus in 1855 in Boston, Massachusetts, when he was 18 years old. By the time he was 23, he had started a Sunday school in Chicago that served some 1,500 underserved children. And in order to figure out what to do with all these kids and then their families who had started to be a part of the Sunday school, Moody started a church which grew rapidly. At age 28, Moody became the president of the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. And after years of successfully leading in so many areas in Chicago, the great uh, or tragic Chicago fire of 1877 burned almost the entire city to the ground, including all the things that Moody had invested his life in. And uh, he uh, became very discouraged, knew that he needed to raise money to rebuild, ended up in New York City, walking the streets, uh, praying, and uh, knowing that he needed to ask uh, some of his donors for the funds to rebuild, but didn't really enjoy that part of his job. I relate to that. Um, and then he had an experience with the Holy Spirit, which I'll describe here in a moment. And after this experience with the Holy Spirit, he felt called not only to rebuild in Chicago, but to go throughout the world and preach the gospel. And he did, uh, and uh, in Europe and in the United States, ended up leading hundreds of thousands of people to faith in Jesus. This pivot point in Moody's life that propelled him into a new era of productive ministry was this encounter with God that he experienced in New York City some 22 years after he became a believer. Now this is important to track. Some 22 years after he became a believer, years into a very successful ministry career and nonprofit leadership career as the president of the YMCA, he has an encounter with Jesus that, that changed a life that had already been changed. And so um, here's, here's what John Pollock, Moody's biographer, uh, writes. He writes, he has Moody talking about being in New York City, and Moody said, I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his Holy Spirit. Pollock goes on, Moody could not face the weariness of reorganization. He craved power. He began to pace the New York streets at night, wrestling within and panting for a Pentecost. I'm struck by that phrase, panting for a Pentecost. In broad daylight, he walked down one of the busiest streets, Broadway or Fifth Avenue. He scarcely remembered which, while crowds thrust by. Quietly, without a struggle, he surrendered. Immediately, an overpowering sense of the presence of God flooded his soul. God Almighty seemed to come very near. I felt I must be alone, he said, and he hurried to the house of a friend nearby. I want to be alone. Let me have a room where I can lock myself in. 
Moody locked the door and sat on the sofa. The room seemed ablaze with God. Moody dropped to the floor and lay bathing his soul in the divine. Of this communion, he later would comment, I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Turmoil of mind glided into peace and conflict of character snapped into integration, leaving him utterly dependent on a power beyond his own. The dead dry days were gone. I was all the time tugging and carrying water, Moody said, but now I have a river that carries me. I am struck by that story. I've thought about it many times over the years. And I was surprised when I picked the book up and read again from it this week to hear the language as we head towards Pentecost Sunday, next Sunday here at the Life Christian Church, that Moody was panting for a Pentecost. Now, please note that this was years before Pentecostalism as a movement within Christianity came into existence. That didn't happen until the turn of the 20th century. There were no Pentecostal churches in Moody's time. There were no um, uh, Pentecostal denominations. Um, Moody, in fact, was a Baptist uh, during the entirety of his lifetime and the institutions that he founded are still Baptist institutions. Yet, Moody panted for a Pentecost. It's important that we understand this in its proper context. He wasn't panting for a certain denomination. He was panting for a certain experience with God that's described in the New Testament in terms of when the day of Pentecost came. And when he experienced what he had been praying for, he experienced the Holy Spirit coming to him in a, in a new way and filling him with God's presence, of having a profound awareness of God's love, of experiencing a new level of calling and, and, and having the power of God now to do what God had called him to do in a way where he no longer felt like he was doing it just in his own strength and power. So what does it mean? that Moody panted for a Pentecost. I, I want to do my best and what's going to be really from this point forward a pretty straightforward Bible teaching to explain what that means. So over the last few weeks, as most of you know, we've been discussing how the Holy Spirit fills believers and helps us witness Jesus in a deeper dimension and gives us the power to witness about Jesus to others. We are told in scripture that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and baptized people who believed in Jesus. It's commonly understood that the day of Pentecost was the birth of the Christian church, that the Christian church was birthed by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter one, verse four, Russ already read some of this earlier. This is just as Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John, speaking of John the Baptist, baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. 
And then we're told Jesus ascended to heaven. His disciples went to Jerusalem and they waited for this thing that Jesus had promised. And they waited, by my calculation, seven days in Jerusalem. Jesus had been raised from the dead, spent three days showing himself alive by many infallible proofs. Uh, spent, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, he, uh, after the, the crucifixion of Jesus, he was three days in, in, the, in the ground. He rose from the dead. He spent 40 days hanging out with his disciples, teaching them about what was to come. He ascended to heaven, and then his disciples went and waited uh, for what ended up being seven days until, we're told in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then Peter stood up, tried to explain to a crowd that had assembled what had happened and what Jesus had come to do. And when he finished, someone in the crowd said, so what should we do? To which Peter responded, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So, as I mentioned, next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is celebrated by Christians all over the world. And I want to talk a little bit, for the first time in a number of years, by the way, it's been far too long, I want to talk a little bit about what Pentecost is in a Christian context and what it has to do with us. I'm going to make it as simple as I can, as painless as I can. I'm just going to pose it like this, three questions about Pentecost, and the first is, what is Pentecost? So, Pentecost, this may sound like a curveball, but this is where we really need to start. Pentecost is one of the three major annual festivals or feasts on the Hebrew calendar. That's what it, mean when it means when it says the day of Pentecost came. It means that this particular feast started on the morning that the thing I just read to you in Acts chapter 2 happened. All right, the three major feasts, because I know you're on the edge of your seat wanting to learn as much as you can about things you've never thought about before. The three major feasts are first of all, Passover. I wanna locate this in a way that will give you some context. The first major feast, now there are other feasts and festivals on the Hebrew calendar, but most of them happen in the context of these three major feasts. The first is Passover. Passover celebrates, of course, the deliverance of the Jews from Egyptian captivity. And the first Passover happened in Egypt when the death angel saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of faithful Jews and passed over their households. However, the death angel did not pass over the household of the Egyptians. And consequently, God's people were delivered from Egyptian captivity. Passover celebrates the passing over of the death angel over the households of the Jews who were captive in Egypt. The second major feast is Pentecost. The word Pentecost comes from the Greek word for 50. 
Pentecost is the feast that is celebrated 50 days after Passover, or to be more exact, at the completion of seven full weeks from Passover, or 49 days plus one day. It is believed that this is the feast that God's people were delivered from Egypt to celebrate, and that the first Pentecost happened at Mount Sinai when Moses was given the law. So Moses and Aaron stood before Pharaoh, Exodus 5 tells us, and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. The feast that Passover delivered the people to go hold was, most believe, Pentecost. And uh, when God's people were delivered through Passover, and crossed the Red Sea and went to the wilderness. Moses went up to the mountain, received the Decalogue, came back down, and this was the birth of the Old Testament church, if you please, or the Jewish religion. It happened at what came to be called Pentecost. Now, this feast is also associated with the first or former reign of the year and the first of the grain harvest. So when you read about this in the Jewish scriptures, you'll see it referred to a lot in, in, in that way. In the Jewish scriptures, it's called by a variety of names, including the Feast of Weeks, uh, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks at the first fruits of the grain harvest. At the time of Christ, however, be, we, because of the dominance of the Greek language, and I guess because of the simplicity of referring to it in this way, it simply came to be known as Pentecost, meaning 50 days after Passover. So the day of Pentecost that we're referring to, the day of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2, the day on which the church was born, the, that day of Pentecost occurred 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. When was Jesus crucified? He was crucified during the Feast of Passover. And you kind of, you know, I don't have time to get into the typology here, but it's really quite beautiful. You have to imagine that Jesus, who's becoming the Passover lamb, slain for the sins of the world, is, is now through his death calling for death to pass over us, but not only that, but to deliver us from Egypt to the promised land, right? And you almost have to imagine Jesus at the cross celebrating, if you please, Passover by becoming the Passover, saying in effect, let my people go so that they can go hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Pentecost is, for all of us, a feast that we celebrate in the midst of the wilderness because of Passover. The third major feast is tabernacles. Um, this is also called the festival of tents or booths. To this day, during this feast, observant Jews live for seven days outside of their home in booths. Um, uh, uh, Sharon and I, for many years, when we lived here in West Orange, had uh, uh, most of the people on our street were uh, Jewish, and uh, the, the more observant of them during Feast of Tabernacles would build a booth or a little tabernacle outside their house. It actually looked like a really nice place, and they would live in the booth all seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. How many of you have ever seen that before? 
Well, most of us have. In this part of the world, we have lots of, uh, most of us have lots of uh, folks uh, who are, uh, lots of friends who are Jewish, and we sometimes, hopefully, even celebrate some of these feasts with our Jewish friends, our, the forebears of Christianity. And so the, the purpose of tabernacles was to commemorate the fact that God's people lived in tents on their journey from Egypt to Canaan and that they were free from Egypt and that God took care of them on their journey. Now the Feast of Tabernacles occurred at the time of the latter rain and celebrated the harvest of the entire year. In, in Christian theology, we believe that Passover has been fulfilled through Jesus and his death, that Pentecost has been fulfilled through the birth of the New Testament church and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the tabernacles is yet to be experienced and will be experienced in the age to come. A subject for another time. Don't worry, I'll probably never actually preach about that again. Now a festival or a feast, it was a big deal to God that his people celebrated these festivals that God called. And it's interesting when you really study these, how important it was to God and what a festival or a feast was to be. Essentially, it was a gigantic party that God celebrated with his people to commemorate something God had done in their past that he wanted them to remember. And when you study the etymology of the Hebrew word that's translated festival or feast, it, it has to do with, on one hand, a set time, meaning an appointment that God would make with his people. In other words, he would say, at this place, at this time, every year, I want everybody who can to show up wherever my name is located, most in, for much of the history of the Jewish people, the, the temple in Jerusalem, and we are going to have a celebration. And it was supposed to be a celebration to such an extent that one of the words that's translated uh, feast actually means to dance. You kind of got to get in the spirit of this if you're going to ultimately understand Pentecost. It was God essentially saying, here are three times a year, we're all going to get together and we are going to rejoice together. These were not sad occasions. These were, for the most part, now typically there'd be some, uh, 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 in one feast in particular, there'd be some fasting involved, but this was about feasting. This was about celebration. So, with that in mind, second question, I know you're dying for me to answer. For those of you who don't know me, I'm kidding. What happened on the day of Pentecost. So let's talk for a few minutes about how Pentecost was celebrated at the time of Christ as best we can understand it. And let's try to get a sense of what was going on in Jerusalem when the, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. So first of all, for these three major feasts, Jews would travel from all over the world to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. And this was particularly true as it concerned Pentecost. When you study about this, uh, which, which I have a good bit actually, uh, travel conditions during springtime, 
in the Middle East are, are, are more conducive to people traveling. The seas are calmer. So Pentecost was typically the best attended, and it sounds like actually the most fun feast for the Jewish people every year. And so Jewish people would travel from all over the world to keep this appointment with God and, if you please, to dance. On the day of preparation or the day before Pentecost, a number of things would happen like this. People all over Jerusalem or observant Jews, wherever they were in the world, would clean their houses and put fresh flowers and pleasant smelling herbs throughout. Then people, primarily the males, as the Old Testament calls this to happen, but the New Testament makes very clear that both men and women were invited to this particular party, that the males would purify themselves by confessing their sins and by being baptized or being immersed in water. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, and by the way, Sharon and I are really seriously thinking about hosting a trip to Israel next February, uh, if that's something that you think you might be interested in, you might let, let you, I need to hear some folks that would enjoy that. But if you've ever been to Jerusalem, outside the temple, there are baptismal baths that someone can walk into, descend into, and then walk out of. And this is presumably where when uh, the day of Pentecost came and there were 3,000 people baptized, this is how 3,000 people were able to be baptized because there were all these baptismal, uh, I don't know what you would call them, uh, they, they, they weren't like our plastic tub we used, they were, they were hewn out of the, out of the rock, and, and, but there were a number of them. And so in Jerusalem, outside of the temple, the day before Pentecost, th there were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people being, confessing their sins and being baptized. The idea is that they were starting anew. And then they would put on their festival garments, men, women, children, they would get dressed up for Pentecost and they would put on garments that, that were the kind of garments you'd put on if you're going, if you please, to a holy party. And then they would have supper and stay up all night long reading scripture in their homes. And then as morning of Pentecost was arriving, people would leave their homes and start gathering Again, you have to imagine this in the small old city of Jerusalem, gathering by the thousands and thousands and thousands around the temple, out in the courtyard of the temple. And as they would gather there, the priest would begin to offer the regular morning sacrifices, and then the priest would offer particular sacrifices unique to the celebration of Pentecost. There's a lot to be said about all of that, but I get fascinated, I guess, with silly things. It's at Pentecost that they would offer what was called a wave offering. The priest would. And the wave offering was when the priest would hold in each of his hands a loaf of bread that was made from the first grain of the first of the wheat harvest. This is part of what Pentecost was about. It was celebrating the first of the harvest, which is why it's called uh, the first fruits of the grain harvest at some places in the Old Testament. And the priest would hold these loaves up, and I've, 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 I read in one scholarly work that to do the wave offering meant that the priest would vibrate up and down and that he would rock to and fro. This was the beginning of rock and roll, actually. It's, I'm sorry, it started at Pentecost. 
I think the idea that I want to convey is that this was, a, this was an expressive, full body kind of experience. The priest is waving the loaves and the people are excited and they're ready and they're fired up and they're thinking about how God had delivered them from Egypt and how that, how that, that God had, had caused them to become a people who worship the one true God. They are ready. They're not standing there sad and solemn. Pentecost wasn't that kind of a day. It was a celebration. And then the priest would get up or the, the, the Levites, the, the priestly class would get up and they would begin to read from scripture in a way that somehow projected over this crowd of thousands of festive people. They were particularly read as they, as was true on any holiday in uh, Judaism from the Hillel. The Hillel is that great set of prayers from Psalm 113 to 118. Uh, and uh, uh, faithful Jews would memorize and be able to recite those prayers. And the priest would get up and uh, Merrill F. Unger in his work said that the priest would begin to chant these prayers and the people would begin to chant these prayers back. You kind of got to get into the spirit of it just a little bit. I'm not much of a chanter, but let me just try it a little bit. No, maybe not. The priest would get up and say, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised. And the people, thousands of people would say back, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised. You got to get this picture in your mind. You got to get this picture in your mind. Festive clothing, happy people, ready to celebrate, confessed sins, baptized, clean, standing there, waiting for the day of Pentecost to fully come. This was the atmosphere in the city of Jerusalem when Acts chapter two, verse one says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. The city was rocking with praise and rejoicing and singing and dancing with pilgrims from all over the world. And there is no reason to believe that the people who followed Jesus were not participating in this at some level. In fact, I think scripture indicates that they most likely were. Luke's gospel has Jesus right before the ascension saying to his disciples, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with, what are the next two words? Great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. I don't know why. I grew up in kind of fundamentalistic Christianity. And somehow or another, there was a sad bent to every possible thing. Somehow or another, you could turn the most wonderful thing into the saddest thing that you took 
you know, religion takes the life out of everything. And sometimes we get so messed up about the heart of God and what God is like. And this is one of those instances. I've always had this picture in my mind of these poor, sad 120 people sitting on their hands, waiting in the upper room saying, oh no, Jesus left. We're so upset. Oh no, what are we going to do? But in fact, that's not what that scripture says, does it? They were praising God. They were rejoicing. They were full of great joy. This was what was going on when the Holy Spirit came and baptized these people. Now, there they were, from the best we can understand, about 120 of the followers of Jesus, either in the upper room of a private home close to the temple, and if you've been in Jerusalem, uh, they're, they're, uh, everything is in the same vicinity, either in an upper room of a private home close to the temple or in one of the 12 great halls that were built on to the temple of Herod in which there were some upper halls, some upper rooms. So anyway, they were right there in the vicinity of the temple, and you just have to imagine on the morning of Pentecost that where they're at was probably literally shaking with the sound of thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are rejoicing and participating early in the morning in the feast of Pentecost. Acts 1.12, let's get a sense of who they were. After the ascension, Jesus, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those presents were present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, but pretty happy prayer, along with the women, which is, again, Jesus broke down so many barriers in, in, in the Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament. The males were the ones who confessed their sins and were baptized on behalf of their family. Now women are introduced into this new reality. Uh, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, his half-brothers, uh, 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 he, he was his, the father of Jesus was, was uh, God the father. The, the father of his brothers are someone, uh, Joseph or, or perhaps someone later than him married to Mary, but his family is there in this room as well. And when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there was supernatural phenomena that happened in that moment, some of which uh, is never repeated again in Scripture. They hear this sound like a mighty rushing wind. We don't see that happen again. It doesn't mean it can't. It just means we don't see it happen again. There are tongues that sit on their head, uh, tongues of fire. Uh, we don't see that happen again. They speak in languages known to people from this variety of nations who traveled to celebrate Pentecost, but unknown to the speaker. They, they, they speak in, 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 in languages that are intelligible to those who are hearing it. We don't see that happen that way again. Now we do see, uh, and I plan to talk about this, by the way, briefly next Sunday night at our believers meeting uh, on Pentecost Sunday, we do see uh, 
speaking in tongues happen in a way that appears to be somewhat normative throughout the book of Acts, and that's where there, where uh, 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 the Spirit causes someone to speak uh, words that are unintelligible to the speaker and the hearer. That's a subject for another time. But this particular thing where words known to the hearers but not to the speaker doesn't happen again in Scripture. Uh, again, it doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means it doesn't happen. And the way that you kind of get a sense of whether something's normative or not is there's this, this law of, of, of biblical interpretation that says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. You have to see something happening enough where you would say, well, maybe this is something we should consider, learn about, maybe even expect. But in this case, there, there, there's this supernatural phenomena. People are, are, as Jesus said they would, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then uh, they're so, and, and then these people from these, the, who are there in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast are hearing the gospel being preached to them in their languages. And they say, this is impossible, how can this happen? There's no way that these people from Galilee, they were considered the country bumpkins, would know how to speak our language. We're from Crete or we're from wherever. There's no way they know how to speak their language, but nonetheless they were. And the people are so happy that some folks stand around and make fun of them, said these, they look like they're drunk. And, 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 and then finally Peter stands up and he says, enough of this, let me explain to you what's happening. First of all, these people who are so happy and overwhelmed in the this experience with God are in fact not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Now there would be wine drunk on the day of Pentecost, but that hadn't started yet, just to be frank about it. And Peter stands up and says, just want to let you know that these folks aren't drunk on wine like you think, but this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel in the Old Testament that in the last days says, God, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is it. And then Peter stood there and explained Jesus to them in the context of Old Testament scripture. And when he was finished explaining Jesus, the good news about Jesus, someone raises their hand. I don't know if they raise their hand or not. It doesn't actually say, but someone says, hey, what should we do? To which Peter says, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, this isn't just for those of us that this just happened to. He said, this promise is for you, and it's for uh, your children, and it's for all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So, so the answer to the rhetorical question, well, is something like that for me is, well, if you feel like that God has called you, yes. This is really good news, by the way. So here's my third, final question. And it's, let me see if I can find it. What does this have to do with me? So I believe that each of us can expect to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let me treat this briefly, and then I'm just going to encourage you to think about that this week, to pray about this. I like to talk about two experiences with the Holy Spirit. Now, when I start getting into these kinds of subjects, there are a lot of ways that a lot of scholars, 
um, teachers over the last 2,000 years have tried to explain some of this. But I always start from the basis that I'm explaining this as best as I know how, but I'm not sure I completely know how to explain this. I think there are some things in Scripture that are in the realm of mystery. And for someone to authoritatively say, this is the way it is, is a terrible mistake and a lack of humility, and it brings division in the body of Christ. Because sometimes, so that's why sometimes, even though I'm the pastor of this church and have the authority to set doctrine in this church, I'm still very careful about how I say things so that, so that people can consider and read scripture and think about things and pray about things. So I'm, what I'm getting ready to tell you is, as best as I can understand it, this is the best I know how to explain it, I like to say that there are two primary experiences with the Holy Spirit. The first is called regeneration. Now this is a technical and theological term I've taught about this many times. I'll simply say that when someone believes in Jesus and is born again, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and experience what theologians call regeneration. And this means that their spirit, which was dead to God, comes alive to God and to God's things. They see the kingdom of God. They enter the kingdom of God. They are born again. Uh, Ephesians chapter one tells us when you believed you were marked in him with a seal the promised holy spirit i believe that every believer has been indwelt by the holy spirit and the holy spirit has caused us to be to experience spiritual birth and to become alive to God in a way that we were not previously alive to God. What happens when someone's regenerated like that? All of a sudden they love things they didn't used to love. All of a sudden somebody says, I, I never ever wanted to go to church in my life. Now I can't hardly wait to get there on Sunday mornings. What happened? Your spirits come alive to God. I never wanted to read scripture. Now even though I don't understand it totally, I find myself wanting to read it. I never wanted to listen to anybody ever teach for 40 minutes the Bible. But now I kind of think I'm enjoying it. I'm taking notes and, and I never wanted to ever talk about my faith. And now I find myself talking about my faith. What happened to you? You've been born again. You've come alive to God, boom. And nobody knows how to explain it any more than it just, you just, the Holy Spirit comes and all of a sudden, you wake up to God. Praise God. All right. Secondly, I believe that Scripture is, cl is clear. That there is a subsequent baptism, or maybe it even be better to say baptisms, of the Holy Spirit. The kind of thing, let me locate this for you. D.L. Moody, 22 years after first believing in Jesus and being born again, 22 years later is, quote, panting for a Pentecost, end quote. Praying for the Holy Spirit to come. Did it mean that the Holy Spirit hadn't already come? No. He, the Holy Spirit indwelt this guy. He was just hungry for something more. Okay? And... I like the term to describe this, though there are, again, you'll find people trying to explain this in different ways. 
But I like to describe this something more as a baptism of the Holy Spirit, or I'd also be happy to call it baptisms of the Holy Spirit, because that's how Jesus referred to what happened on Pentecost, and it's also how Peter referred to what happened on Pentecost. What did Jesus say, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, John the Baptist baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It seems to me that if that's what Jesus called what happened on Pentecost, that's good enough for me to call it that. And then several years later, when the Holy Spirit came on on, on the house of a guy named Cornelius, as Peter was preaching, Peter described what happened there as a baptism of the Holy Spirit as had happened on Acts chapter 2. That's in Acts 11. As I uh, began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, this is Peter speaking, as he had come on us at the beginning, referring to the day of Pentecost. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I like to refer to this something more as baptism of the Holy Spirit. But scripture describes it in a variety of ways. Here are just a few of those ways. Acts chapter two, verse four, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts two seventeen, God says, I will pour out my spirit. Acts two thirty eight, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts ten forty four, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The Holy Spirit had been poured out. Acts eleven fifteen, the Holy Spirit came on them and, and uh, Peter said, uh, you will be, quoted, Jesus saying, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I guess what I'm trying to say is, call it whatever you want, I don't care. That's not really the important point. Around here, we don't argue about semantics, unless there's some real essential need to. What I'd like for you to consider is that even as a believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you can enter a deeper dimension. You can have experiences with God through the Holy Spirit in ways that are transformative. Here are a couple examples of this happening in in the book of Acts, and I need to get to a close quickly. In fact, Kevin, why don't you, if you would, plan on doing uh, the benediction. Would you do that? Because I need to go dedicate babies, and uh, I'm running out of time. So, so here, or Kevin, you can come and finish the message. You want to do that? It's your choice. It's whatever you want to do. <laughs> All right, I'll finish the message. Acts chapter uh, 4, uh, here, Acts chapter 4 talks about a, a group of these disciples who presumably were at Pentecost, who after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You say, well, pastor, haven't they already been filled with the Holy Spirit? Yes, they've already been filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, why is it saying they're being filled with the Holy Spirit again? Because it appears they're being filled with the Holy, I don't, again, I'm just reading what it says. Something happened where the Holy Spirit came on them again. I mean, if you don't want that to happen, don't get nervous. If you don't want it to happen, it's not. I think I'm probably speaking to a whole lot of people, though, who have a hunger for God in the depths of our spirits, who want whatever God has for us in our lives. Here's another example. This has to do with believers 
who've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, but who hadn't yet experienced what I like to call, for reasons I've described, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8, verse 14. You may say, why are you reading so much from the book of Acts? Because that's where you learn about this. Uh, The book of Acts is a story of the early church. It's a story of how people responded to Jesus. It's a story about how people experienced the gospel, how they were initiated into Christianity. This is where we learn about this kind of thing. It's, It's in the book of Acts, the actions of the apostles. Acts chapter 8, verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, these are believers who you'll learn in a moment have been baptized in water, but who haven't yet had whatever this, again, I'm using the word baptism experience is. I mean, it's really clear. It's not, I mean, I'm not reading anything into this. I'm just reading, let me read it again. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now what's going on there? Again, I don't fully understand it. I'm just, this is what it says. These are believers who've been baptized who Peter and John thought it was so important that they have this experience with the Holy Spirit that's described here, that they went to pray for them and lay hands on them so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Seemed like a pretty big deal. uh, Here's a famous one, Acts chapter 19. Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul didn't say, well, that's a big deal. It's no big deal. It's not what he said, is it? When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, let me wrap this up quickly. What is the Holy Spirit? Or better yet, who is the Holy Spirit? And what is it that we want to pray for? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the three-in-one God. And when the Holy Spirit comes on us, the Holy Spirit brings the very presence of the Father and Son into our lives. The Nicene Creed says that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and Son, and with the Father and Son is worshiped and glorified. Why do I say that? I say that because I want each of us to understand that when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us when we first believe, and when the Holy Spirit comes and does whatever the Holy Spirit does in ways subsequent to when we first believe, what we are getting is we are getting the very presence of God. When the Holy Spirit comes, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus calls this the spirit of truth. It's it's the spirit that comes from the Father. Uh, Jesus calls it his very spirit. God comes and indwells your spirit in ways where you experience the very power of God. Now, I'm going to leave it there this week. But what I want to ask you to do is to pray for the Holy Spirit to come in your life. That's really 
what I said all of that to get to. Next week is Pentecost Sunday. Pastor Phil Muncy is going to be here. He has an unusual kind of gift around speaking to this kind of thing and leading people in prayer. Sunday morning will be our normal Sunday morning. Uh, please feel free and encourage you to bring guests on Sunday morning. Sunday night is going to be what we call a believers meeting. And what I mean by that is, this, I don't mean to offend you when I say this, don't bring a guest Sunday night, please. It's a believer's meeting. And I think that scripture, I wish I had more time to get into this. I think, and in fact, I'll speak to this for a few minutes next Sunday night. I'll speak for maybe 10 minutes because I want to finish this teaching and, and fill in a couple blanks about some questions that I think folks have about this. But I think that there are uh, that, that, that scripture very clearly regulates where certain kinds of things are supposed to happen and cautions that things happen in the presence of those who don't believe or who are skeptical uh, uh, and, and that the church is supposed to be careful about that, which we are here on Sunday mornings. But that just as surely, there are other times when the church gets together and you're not worried about that, you're just able to just just, um, you know, I don't, I don't know, go after it, I guess. When it comes to some of these more um, phenomenal things that I think this can lead us to. Here's what Jesus said. <clears throat> Jesus said, that everyone who asks receives, everyone who knocks has the door open to them, and everyone who seeks finds. And then he said, which of you, if you have a son, if he asks for an egg, do you give him a scorpion? Or if he asks for bread, do you give him a snake? And Jesus said, you, even as a human being, if your child asks you for something, you don't give them something bad, you give them something good. And then Jesus said, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for it? My prayer for each of you who are hungry for more of God, for a deeper dimension this week, is to simply pray to the Father that he will send the Holy Spirit into your life in powerful ways. And don't get mixed up and conflate the Holy Spirit with some of the signs that are mentioned as happening around the Holy Spirit when it came in the book of Acts. Again, I'm gonna discuss some of that Sunday night. It's not about that stuff. The, receiving the Holy Spirit is about the Holy Spirit. It's about the presence of God in your life. And all of us, all of us can pant for a Pentecost and expect to receive more of God.